I'm Crystal DiMicelli, and welcome to the Forces for Nature show. Do you find yourself overwhelmed with all the doom and gloom you hear of these days? Do you feel like you, as just one person, can't really make a difference? Forces for Nature cuts through that negativity. In each episode, I interview someone who's doing great things for animals and the environment. We talk through the problem they're addressing, the solution they have found, we'll keep them going, and we'll leave you with practical action tips so that you too can become a force for nature. Today I'm talking with Katie Moore, the Deputy VP of Animal Rescue with the International Fund for Animal Welfare. Although she currently works to save all kinds of animals all over the world, her expertise is in marine mammal strandings. She has been part of the release of countless dolphins, seals, whales, porpoises, you name it. For Katie, each individual matters, so much so that she'll chase down a 500-pound seal to remove the netting that is choking it from around its neck. Through procedures that she has put into place regarding response time and supportive care and scientific studies that she has led, release rates on Cape Cod have jumped from less than 14% to over 70%. And that doesn't even count the strandings that she's averted due to the mass stranding prevention program that she's pioneered. Marine mammal rescue can be a brutal job that calls upon you to get in the water at 3 a.m. in the middle of January, but Katie wouldn't have it any other way. So today we're talking about marine mammal strandings. A marine mammal stranding can be one of four things. When a marine mammal is on the shore and unable to make it back to the water, on the shore and able to get back to the water but needs medical attention, in the shallow water but unable to go deeper, and finally one that's found dead on land or in the water. Katie, can you explain to me some of the reasons an animal would find themselves in this predicament? Well, there are lots of reasons why we see stranded marine mammals. Some of those are natural causes, and some are anthropogenic or human-caused events. On the natural side of things, we often see animals that are very, very young. Those would be animals that might have a failure to thrive or are not surviving, say a new mom that's inexperienced. Um, And also the very old, certainly the natural course of life. And we do see older animals that come ashore. And then there's also just natural diseases that are out there. You know, as humans, we understand that people get sick, might have cancer, whatever it might be. The same kind of thing happens with animals. There are diseases that affect them throughout their life. And so we can see that as well. From an anthropogenic side of things, what affects uh, the animals most are things like entanglement. And that can be in fishing gear, so getting caught in fishing nets, um, or entanglement in marine debris. So that's like uh, just garbage and cast-offs. We see a lot in the news about plastics in the ocean. Um, We've seen a lot about not just um, entanglement, but also ingestion. So animals that actually eat the plastics, and we find them in the stomachs when we do a necropsy or an animal autopsy after they've died. And so there are these different kinds of human interactions. Um, Others include things like ship strikes, which happens more with the large whales than other animals, but we do see it in, in some of the smaller dolphins as well. It can happen. So there are different kinds of human interactions that come into play that can cause a stranding. Now, you mentioned entanglement. Animals such as seals can be quite complicated to help in entanglement situations. What is it that you guys do to deal with that? Certainly dealing with any 
marine mammal, I mean, especially when they're in the water. Seals are semi-aquatic, which means they spend part of their time in the water and part of their time on the beach. So sometimes we have the opportunity to have a little bit of an advantage if they're actually up on the beach and we're able to capture them. When they are in the water and when all of the cetaceans, which are the dolphins and whales, when they're in the water, when we have to disentangle them, that's a whole other game because they are way more agile in the water than we are. But with the seals, we actually tried for years trying to capture them and it's really difficult. And what we have to do now is to actually sedate them remotely. So think dart gun. And it's definitely more challenging than you would think. The seals haul out in large groups and you have to identify one distinct individual that's entangled in the larger group and you have to have very good aim. And remember, you're standing on a floating boat with wind blowing and waves moving the vessel. So it's it's super challenging. We have some very dedicated folks. And so we have our gray seals, which are the most frequently entangled. Um, about 7% of the population of gray seals that we see off our coastline in Cape Cod and southern Massachusetts are entangled. And so it's an opportunity to get out there, sedate them, and then you have to basically either wait for them to fall asleep. But what usually happens is they um, flush into the water. So the whole group goes into the water and we have to find that one individual. And the way we do that is the dart that we've injected them with, that we shoot it from a gun on the boat and the dart goes into the animal and it sticks. There's a little barb on it that makes it stay. And it also has a little sound producing like pinger so that we can actually put a, a hydrophone, a listening device in the water and follow it by sound when we can't see it. And then we have to scoop it up and basically net it before, you know, because it's very difficult. If you, As you can imagine, we have to kind of guess at how much the animal weighs and how much drug to give it. So you want to make sure you can safely take that animal, catch it up. We bring it onto the boat and bring it then on shore and can disentangle it and treat it medically and anything that might need to happen to it before we put it back out there. If it's in the water, it won't drown? It'll stay on the surface? No, that's a super challenge. These particular animals will go to the bottom. If they're, if they're too heavily anesthetized or sedated, we're not anesthetizing, we're really sedating. So we're just trying to slow them down a bit so we can actually get our hands on them. So it's something we have to be really, really careful about. You have to give them just enough of the drug to have effect, but you can't give them too much or they will, they will go to the bottom and you'll have to really scoop them up. So it's something that is very stressful for us and for the animal to make sure we get that right. I bet. And, and where you are in Cape Cod, mass strandings are common because of a variety of reasons. What constitutes a mass stranding? That's one of the things that is, that is most challenging about working on Cape Cod, but it's also, I think for a lot of us, one of the most exciting parts about being on the Cape is that we do have mass strandings. And mass strandings are when uh, more than one individual animal comes ashore at the same time. So that's, um, and we're not talking seals here, we're talking just dolphins and whales. And it's when they strand together in time and space. In some places, like in New Zealand, these strandings um, tend to happen in one location. So you'll end up at one section of a beach with a whole group of animals that come ashore. We sometimes have that here on Cape Cod, but we also see that ours will sometimes spread out across a longer um, coastline. And if you ever look on a map for Cape Cod, it's basically like a hook that sticks out into the ocean. Um, Imagine a person sitting there and making a muscle <laughs> and sticking their arm up and trying to make a muscle. That's the shape of the cape, and the animals get stuck on the inside of that curve a lot of the time. And so it's, uh, it's a real challenge to get out there when you have anywhere from just two or three animals to sometimes 20 or 50, um, even close to 100 uh, where we are 
thankfully knock on wood, <laughs> not recently. But mass strandings constitute a whole different kind of response because imagine you're going out to rescue not just one animal, but but many. So the challenges are very, very different. In the documentary Sonic Sea, you spoke of a mass stranding in Madagascar back in 2008. Can you tell me a little bit about that? We got called by the U.S. government, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, to head to Madagascar with a, a team of folks from Wildlife Conservation Society and a scientist from Woods Hole Oceanographic. And we flew in literally within 24 hours. We were like, okay. <laughs> they said, can you go? And then we were on a plane with all of our gear. And what had been going on was, unfortunately, it had been going on for several days before we got there, but there were somewhere between 100 and 200 melon-headed whales that had gone up into an estuary. So basically, these are offshore animals, should be in deep water all the time, and they had gone into an estuary, and we knew that some of them had died. We didn't know how many were left. We did our best. We split into teams, and some folks were collecting those animals that had died to try and necropsy them or do an autopsy to try and figure out what had happened. Meanwhile, there was a team of us dedicated to the live animals that were still there, and we had cobbled together little boats. We, we got a guy who did charters out of a nearby town to tourists. We got him, and we had some police boats that they had, and we would go out on the river every day and try and herd these animals because you're herding cattle. You know, you're a cowboy on your horse, and you, you ride behind them, kind of moving back and forth, and kind of motivate them to go in the direction you want them to go. We had some success. We were able to move this large group of animals, 20 to 40 that were left. Um, it turns out there were a whole bunch that had died and been buried before we even got there. So that was tough. We do know that we got a few animals that actually made it through and to the outside, but most of them, most of them were dying as the days passed. We learned a lot, which was important. And the great thing was that after we left, the locals continued to try and do good work. We left a lot of our equipment behind and they even started trying to get the ones that were alive if they were small enough to be picked up, put them in a boat and drive them out and put them back in water. Basically, the work that we did didn't, all it allowed us to do was tick off the things that we knew it wasn't caused by. And then eventually narrow it down to one of the few things that we, we think it was caused by. Which was what? There was some offshore uh, seismic testing going on. And so it was actually a multi-beam echo sounder being used offshore to kind of map the ocean floor. And it was being run by one of the big oil companies offshore. You know, the group, they were doing everything right. They had a marine mammal observer on board. Unfortunately, it still happened. They stopped work as soon as we were on scene and were like, hey, something's going on. So what is it about the sound that's created that forces these animals to, to just try to get away anywhere they can go? In this case, what we're talking about is something really acute like really loud pulses of sound. It must have just been this perfect storm of the animals being just in the wrong spot when this sound source started because it, it their panic mode is fight or flight. This is, at that point, pretty painful for them. They can't communicate because it's so loud and it's this repetitive pinging noise. And so they bolted and their herd mentality made them stick together. That's the essence of every mass stranding is that they stick together. And so they just, how they managed to get through that narrow opening and, and which one of them thought that was where they needed to go. But in all essence, you know, the sound was probably a lot less inside because it couldn't travel through that space. So they probably relieved the immediate issue and ended up dying because of it. And so it's those acute things that can be really tough. What we really wish is that we could have gotten samples from the very first animals while they were fresh, because when you have an acute event like that, 
you can see trauma to the ears and in the brain and in the sinuses of the head. So it would have been, it could have helped us to be more definitive in our answer. And that would have been great. But unfortunately, you know, that just wasn't possible. There are also circumstances where you have more chronic issues with noise. And that's more things like increased shipping noise in the ocean. And that has like some different effects on, on marine mammals. Is it kind of like living your life in front of a rock concert speaker? Yeah, sort of. I mean, sometimes it's it's just that kind of latent background noise that is just annoying. So you're constantly living with this rumble of noise around you. And especially for those animals like the large whales that communicate over long distances to find mates and things like that, it really disturbs that process. It makes it almost impossible for them to communicate over long distances. So that changes the whole dynamic and how animals are choosing a mate. <laughs> you can no longer find the best singer. You go with the one you can hear. <laughs> it may not be the best one for, you know, the continuation of the species. So that's a super challenge. And it increases stress level. There was a really interesting study, and they noted in Sonic Sea, but it was it's a published paper, where folks who were studying right whales in the Northeast, one of the things they were doing was studying stress hormones. And you do that in large whales, since you can't walk up and drop blood or anything like that, from collecting poo. So they actually, and they have a really cool sniffer dog that actually was on the bow that would help them find whale poo in the water but you can test it for stress hormones. So they were tracking this over time. And then all of a sudden they saw a precipitous drop. Like all of a sudden the stress hormones were down. These animals were not stressed out anymore. And they were like, whoa, really weird. What's going on? And when they looked at it, at their data set, it correlated with 9-11, 2001. So it was when shipping into the ports was cut off and like all the flights were cut off. So noise levels were instantly reduced, instantly. And so was their stress hormones. So you know, obviously, and if you're stressed out all the time, we all know that's not a healthy thing. So that affects reproduction. That affects all kinds of things. So it was a strange offshoot of what happened with 9-11, but a really interesting finding that we would never have really known otherwise. That's super interesting. Yeah. And also really sad to yeah, hear. Yeah, that too. <laughs> huh. um, with all the reasons that animals may strand, either natural or human caused, what makes you feel like you have the power to make change? We never thought it wasn't feasible to do the things we were trying to do. It was just a matter of finding the right way. And that's kind of the way our, our teams approach it is, well, the best thing you can do is tell them it can't be done because they'll be like, oh, <laughs> hell no. Of course we can do that. And so they find a way. And that's, that's kind of how we approach everything. What were some of the hurdles you faced over the years? I think the hardest times for me were in the early days when people thought, well, if there's a mass stranding, all these animals must be sick. They should be euthanized. And that went on for a long time until our organization and some other partners of ours, we were just like, this cannot be right. Like, Because you do the necropsy or the autopsy on those animals, and when you analyze the samples, these animals were totally healthy other than the impact of the stranding. If we could mitigate that or prevent that and get them back in the water, why wouldn't they survive? And so we had to push back on some of the preconceived notions, or we had to really challenge that to prove that it could be done. We come at this from a very welfare-centric piece, like the individual animal welfare matters, but we have to do it scientifically because that, that's how we prove that what we're doing is right for that animal. And so we had, to, we had to prove that they could be rescued and released and survive long term. How did you prove that? We were doing satellite tagging, and ours originally had two antenna. One was a VHF radio antenna so that we could track in real time, and the other was a satellite antenna so that when the animal breaks the surface of the water, Signals are sent to a satellite, it comes back to our computer, 
and we can tell where that animal is, which then we can judge. We also had ones that would record dive patterns. So we could actually look and say, okay, is that animal behaving like a normal animal after we released it or not? If it restrands, we can find it. By using these, we could say to our governing body, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, we gave them a proposal and said, what if we tag these animals? And it was especially true for single animals. What did tracking these animals help to show you? So dolphins are very social. When you see them out in the wild, they're in big pods. And we know that that's their nature. They're very gregarious. And they depend on that kind of herd. And the strong belief, even after we started releasing the mass-stranded animals, because you could put them out in a group with the satellite tags, that was kind of an easier battle. But these individual animals, the thought was that if you put them back out there by themselves, you're, you're basically sentencing them to a long, slow, miserable death because they will be on their own. We started looking at the dead animals or the animals that we euthanized. We realized, wow, these guys are also like, I have an animal that's healthy. If it had a buddy with it, I would have released it. But because it's alone, I'm euthanizing it. Like, that just does not make any sense. We should test this. And our governing body, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, said, okay, test it. And we satellite tagged these individuals, and we were able to track them, like see where they were by satellite, go out in a boat, and actually see that they were in a group of like 100 animals offshore. So it was brilliant. And we were like, okay, so individual animals can actually do well. That's so great. We had a really busy year at one point where we had a lot of animals coming in at different times. And we had released single-stranded animals oh, multiple days apart and satellite tagged them both and they actually met up offshore. And we tracked them. Like you'd see on the computer every day, we'd check and they were traveling together. So we knew they were probably in a larger herd. So, you know, that's where you're like, okay, this is where science matters. We've just proven. And because of that, you know, policies change. There's no longer an assumption that animals can't survive. If they're otherwise healthy, they can probably be put back out. And it gives, it at least gives a benefit of the doubt to the animal at that point. And we do what we can to make sure that we're always doing what's right for them. I love how science has led to animal welfare. Yeah, they are inextricably linked, honestly. And, and welfare and conservation are linked. You know, the individual animals matter and conservation is important and doing things at a population and a species level is incredibly important. But building in the welfare of the individuals within that is also important. Mm -hmm. And and since 1998, you improved the success dolphin release rate from less than 14% to more than 70%. And just all of those dolphins whose welfare you've improved is so impressive. Uh, well, it's it's crazy. When we started tracking the numbers, we were like, oh my God, we're doing it. Like, it's actually happening. Like, what we said is, and what we wanted to have happen is happening. And it's it's through a lot of hard work, for sure. But it's a, it's a huge win. It's a great payback. Yeah. So you were talking about mass strandings earlier. You pioneered the first mass stranding prevention program in the world. Tell me about that. Yeah, interesting. It's funny to think that. That sounds like such a big deal. Um, it is a big it's, deal. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a foolproof thing, but it's it's something that we started. Pingers are these little Coke can-sized noise-emitting little devices. We're actually developed for fishermen to reduce the bycatch of marine mammals in their nets. So they thought if they hung these off their nets, it would alert the animals to the net and they could avoid it, not get entangled, and thus reduce this bycatch of protected species. They don't want to catch them. This is not their goal. We're very lucky here on Cape Cod because there are people on almost every beach. And the people in these hotspot towns, when they see animals swimming where they know they shouldn't be, um, basically if they see animals swimming, because we should not see animals inshore like that, they they call us. And so if we can get out there before the tide falls, 
we have the opportunity to get the boats in the water and use these pingers and try and drive them out into deeper water. And we've had a lot of success. What other methods have improved over the years that have led to higher survival rates? I think the most important thing is our supportive care. If you think about what happens to people when you're in a car accident, the first thing, you know, the paramedics get there, they're going to stabilize you, they're going to put in an IV and give you fluids, they're going to do all the right things to deal with your your stress and prevent shock. Um, and that's kind of what we've started to do over the years. We've learned a lot. A lot of it comes from doing necropsies and understanding what happened to the animals um, and then being able to employ preventative measures. So we do things in supportive care now that once we have the animals in hand, things like different vitamin injections that can help to offset some of the issues, giving them fluids to keep them hydrated, regulating their temperature better. But I would say one of the most important things that has worked is we've been working here for over 20 years now, and we have the most dedicated group of volunteers I've ever seen in my life. Um, they give their time freely at all hours, and most of our strandings like this are in the middle of winter, and it's freezing cold and blowing snow sideways, and they're out there no matter what. How do the volunteers help? We have volunteers in every town, and so they're our first line of defense. And they do that really early supportive care, helping to right the animals if they can safely do that um, so that they're not laying on one side or the other. They're just resting basically on their stomach, on their ventrum. They can dig out little holes for their pectoral fins so they can rest in a more natural position, which makes it easier to breathe. Most of them, we have key responders that have response kits that will have blankets to keep them warm while they're out there until we can get there. Um, They keep the crowd at bay, and they can enlist a little bit of help, but usually we get a a slew of volunteers down there that provide that care until we're on scene. And that means once we're there, we can go super fast because rapid response is the other piece that's super important. So I know that when you guys get there, you might not be able to release them in the same location because either the tide is too low or the conditions just aren't right. What do you do in those situations? So we actually put them in this special trailer that we have and in our trucks and transport them by land to the other side of the cape to the very tip where we can release them into open water. Once we get them into this trailer, we draw blood. So we're doing a blood analysis while we're in route so that we can look at, you know, is there a huge infection in one of them? Should it maybe not be released? Um, The last thing we want to do is put a sick animal back out there. Not only is it not the humane thing for that animal, it also could, because if they stick together and it restrands, others could come back in with it. So we're trying to be a bit pragmatic about that. But we have the ability to ultrasounds. Just last week, the team was doing a rescue and they rescued a pregnant female and were able to release her. So that was really exciting. That allows us to look at the blubber layer. Is it thick enough? Are they healthy? Are there any gas bubbles or anything that we should be aware of in the animal? It's a really interesting thing, but there's a a slew of diagnostics. We test their hearing often, which like I said, most of our, our strandings are natural, but it's good practice for us so that this is a technology that didn't exist when we responded in Madagascar. Had we had that technology, then we could have tested the hearing of those animals to see if they had a deficit. But all of those diagnostics that we can do, then they we do this all en route, so we don't delay their release at all. You can only do what you can do in the time it takes to get from where you rescue them to where you release them. I never would have imagined that this is what my life was going to be, but to try and have an impact for all these animals and also meet these incredible people that are doing this incredible work all over the world. It's like, wow, there's actually, there's a lot of really good people out there doing incredible work. And they feel the same about you, I'm sure. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) So is it possible to prevent strandings? Well, yes and no. I think that things like the mass stranding prevention, that's achievable. And I think, you know, we're still trying to find better and better ways to do that. 
So I think some strandings are preventable. I think certainly human-induced strandings are preventable when we're talking about making quieter ships to reduce ocean noise, finding better technologies. There are quieter technologies to do ocean prospecting for oil and gas and things like that. They're expensive in some cases. In some cases, not as much. But but there is technology there. So making sure that, that this becomes a priority, that's an expectation that companies will do a better job of preserving the world that we have to live in, um, can't keep destroying it. So I, I think in that respect, they are preventable. I think that we will always see strandings because there are natural strandings. Um, our mass strandings here will probably continue. And individual animals coming ashore because they're sick or injured or old or very young. Yeah, for sure. And to piggyback off of human causes from entanglements, to be more careful with fish netting and whatnot. Yeah, definitely. Can you tell me a story of a moment where you said to yourself, this, this is why I do it? We had a huge stranding, a big mass stranding. It's about 16 animals, not huge, big though. But it was in the midst of a lot of other strandings going on. I was very pregnant at the time. So <laughs> my ability to respond was a challenge. But we have a remarkable team and all of our volunteers. But a lot of these animals were way out in the mudflats. There was nothing that could stop this team from getting to as many animals as possible and pulling them out, cleaning them up and looking them over and getting them released. And I can just remember in one day getting to 16 animals that were spread across different areas. And it took multiple trips to get all of these animals. And, and there was never a hesitation. It was never like, ah, oh, well, we can't do that. It was like, well, of course we're going to do it. And watching as I was holding the lantern and helping to carry some of the animals as much as I could, but watching those animals swim off. And I think that's always my favorite part. You know, the times that I've been in the water, in my dry suit in January, in the surf, holding a dolphin, they don't quite take off right away. So we hold them in the water for a while till their flukes start to pump up and down. And they act like they're ready to go. But holding an animal while they're doing that and all of a sudden they just are like, oh, I'm out. I've got this. And I can remember being there and there were four or five of us each holding dolphins in the water and watching them go is amazing. And one of our colleagues had a GoPro underwater and we got the underwater view of it afterwards. And we were like, that was the best because they just took off all together. And you were like, God, that that's why you do it is because you know, they're out there and they're going to go find their pod of dolphins and they're going to take off and do their thing, and do what dolphins are supposed to do. So it's those feel good moments that make the moments that are tougher, easier to handle. Get you through yep. them. Any lessons learned that you can share for others who want to do animal rescue? I get this question a lot. One of the things I will say is a common factor for everybody on my teams is they all volunteered first. Um, most stranding networks and a lot of the rescue and rehab centers around the world are driven and supported by volunteers and you get great experience. This is not stuff they necessarily teach at school. You know, you can get your zoology degree and you can, you know, if you're smart, learn about nonprofit management. That's another good thing to have in your back pocket. Learn how to write a good proposal, learn how to manage your budget, learn how to do good PR. But when it comes to that, get all the schooling you can, but then volunteer, meet people, have conversations, um, and get that experience on the ground. Then they can go get that next job that opens up and be ready to go. That's really good advice. What's your biggest challenge now? Well, you know, I'll say two things. One of my biggest challenges is not getting overwhelmed. I think sometimes the way that we see news and news media and there's almost like this apocalyptic feeling. So I think sometimes my biggest challenge is not letting that get to me. We have to, yes, you have to keep it in mind, but the reality is that you take those small pieces and you, you know, lots of small pieces make a big hole. 
And so we just try to build and build and build the impact that we can have. And I think it's saying no is a really big challenge now. The mentality that I have and that our teams have is that we want to do everything we can to help every animal that that we can, and we can't do everything. And that's where having good colleagues and, and knowing lots of people in the business and being able to call on them and say, hey, this came across my desk, we can't do it, can you? And not being so proprietary that you can't share that, because it's really all about the animals. That's the bottom line. That's so important to state, because if your bottom line is the welfare of the animals, it makes no sense to not work together. So what keeps you motivated in all this? I think it's working with my teams uh, and our volunteers that keeps me really motivated. They are incredible individuals that are completely dedicated, but I think it's their their energy and their excitement about a challenge. Like they never want to back down. Every time there's some problem, it's almost like we get excited. It's like, okay, we can solve this. What are we going to do? And the other thing that motivates me, I think, is my daughter having a nine-year-old. I want her to have a world with wildlife in it and a healthy planet to grow up on and It's really funny. This week, she held a bake sale yesterday. She organized a bake sale with her fourth grade class, and they raised two hundred twenty nine dollars and fifty cents for wildfires in Australia. So, you know, it's 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 things like that where she understands that every little bit you do makes a difference. And if everybody acted that way, this would be a very different place. So that keeps me motivated because I have to do that for her. She needs she needs a healthy planet to grow up on. What should somebody do if they see a stranded whale or dolphin? Well, certainly within the U.S. and In many places internationally, there are stranding networks, so you can usually look them up online, go to the International Whaling Commission, some other resources like that. But the easiest thing to do sometimes is to call your local fire or police department or natural resources, because they are usually connected. They'll know if there's somebody there who can respond. While you're waiting for someone to be there, if you can keep other people from pulling the animals back in the ocean, that's that's a really frustrating thing for us. And if there's no stranding network, There are resources out there who can talk people through what they can do over the phone. I mean, that's something we try to do if anybody ever calls, keeping the birds off of them. Seagulls will attack animals when they're stranded and do a lot of damage. So, you know, keeping those animals safe until responders can get there. Because you mentioned pulling them back into the water. I heard that a lot of the times people don't realize that pulling them by their tail, I think Mm -hmm. it was, like, is actually bad for their um, pectoral fins. Yeah, it can. it's just not a natural thing for them, and it can be really tough. Um, and just handling them in general is, is difficult for them. Now, what can the listener do to help the work that you do? Well, certainly we're a nonprofit, so we do all our work based on donations and grants. But the other thing that you can do in terms of the broader work is find your local stranding network, become a volunteer, learn what you can do, or raise money for your local network too. You know, certainly donations... In-kind donations, most of our work, you know, we do a lot of, especially here on the Cape, blankets and towels and things that we need for work are are always accepted. And that's true for other stranding networks as well. Now, how can people get more information about this topic? Definitely going to www.ifaw.org. We have lots of information there about all the work we do, but certainly specifically our marine mammal rescue and research team is highlighted there. You can learn about some of the research we're doing and the folks that we're working with. And that is where I would point folks. (laughs) Katie, thank you so much for everything that you're doing. You're making such a difference. It was great chatting with you today. It was really fun. It was nice to meet you. On a daily basis, Katie and her team don't know what to expect. They can have no calls for rescues or a call that involves 100 individuals. Each rescue has its own set of complications and challenges can pop up that they've never had to deal with before. 
What's impressive is that her and her team don't back down. Instead, they say, oh, we got this. <laughs> they look at the issue and they figure it out. It makes me think that problem solving isn't necessarily a skill that we have to be born with, but rather an attitude. An attitude that can make all the difference. Don't forget to go to forcesfornature.com and sign up to receive weekly show notes, action tips, and be included in monthly giveaways. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to go to your podcast platform and please rate and review it. And don't forget to subscribe to never miss a new one. Hit me up on Instagram and Facebook and let me know what actions you've been taking. Adopting just one habit can be a game changer because imagine if a billion people also adopted that. What difference for the world are you going to make today?